Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm James Gill. And I'm Steph McKenna. From the National Centre for Writing here in Norwich, England. For this episode, we're bringing you a fantastic audio piece called We Are Always Translating, featuring interviews and soundscapes. The piece asks, what is translation and how is it experienced? Three translators explore their own experiences of inhabiting multiple languages in a portrayal of life in translation, of translation as part of everyday life, of translation as survival, and of people as translated beings. The piece includes interviews with Kavita Barnott, Yovanka Pekete Perdigao, and Nariman Youssef, and was made by Gitanjali Patel and Mia Lane as part of the Visible Communities Residency here at the National Centre for Writing. And apologies if I mispronounce any of those names there. Gitanjali Patel is a translator and social researcher. She was in virtual residence from May to August 2021. She graduated from Oxford University in Spanish and Portuguese and has been translating from these languages since 2010. She translates in a wide range of media, from film scripts, radio programmes, to fiction, including stories by Louisa Geisler, Miriam Mambrini, Fernandez Torres, and, most recently, Evando Nascimenti. In 2016, she co-founded Shadow Heroes, an organisation which engages secondary school students in critical thought using the art of translation. Our Visible Communities programme aims to diversify access routes to literary translation, strengthen links between the literary translation community and diaspora communities, contribute to the debate around decolonising literary translation and expand the range of literature published in translation. It's funded by Arts Council England and the virtual residency programme was supported by the Jan Makowski Foundation. Before we get into Gitanjali's piece, we have a couple of bits of Writing Centre news. First, a call to anyone in the Norfolk area. National Centre for Writing has commissioned five poets and five sound engineers to create an interactive digital experience. It's called Wandering Words. Use our map of Norwich to find the five locations and use the QR codes to listen to the poem and soundscape, each one inspired by that location. Hundreds of people have already been downloading the map and following the route. We think it's a great way to spend a couple of hours of your weekend walking around the city, seeing it and hearing it in a new way with a unique poetic soundtrack. You can find out more and download the map on our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And even if you don't live locally, you can still listen to the poems on our website. And lastly, our May term online writing courses have begun, but September courses will be on sale soon and there are early bird discounts to be had. So whether you're just taking your first steps or at a more advanced level, we have courses to help you become the writer that you want to be. And as well as fiction and poetry courses, we have specific courses in memoir writing, crime, creative nonfiction and other genres. So head to the courses section of our website to find out more. And now, without further delay, we bring you the fantastic We Are Always Translating. We are always translating. It's like uh, unlocking worlds and finding passageways between them. Um, Some of us grow up as translated beings. I never grew up speaking Hindi. It's a language I slowly started to speak while living in Delhi. I always understood very clearly, but I didn't have a lot of confidence with speaking. So I think I would grow comfortable when I was speaking a lot. But there's also an awareness that I sometimes translating in my head from English into Hindi and that I've got an accent 
an English accent when I speak and my fluency kind of is better or worse um, or my comfort depending on how immersed I am in that context. I grew up with German because I went to a German school in Cairo, where I'm from. I haven't worked with German as much as I would like to. Since I got into translation, there's been more demand for for Arabic. But for me, German is very much the language of my memories, and it's it's language of my childhood, and it's it's a language that I I feel more intimate to in a way that's quite unique. Um, so there's certain sentences that if they're expressed in German, they they have an impact on me that other languages won't have. It's it's quite strange because it's not a language that I use in my everyday life anymore. And I only speak it with very few friends that I grew up with. And even then, like we mix it with Arabic and English. So, um, so yeah, it has a very unique part in my life, peripheral and at the same time quite quite close to my essence in a way. French is not a language spoken in Guinea-Bissau. It was a language that my parents uh, learned whilst they were studying in France. And then they decided that me and my siblings would study and go to a French school. And over the years, even though we've kind of moved around, I've always spoken in French with my parents. So it's a language of guess of love and a language that I, even though I have to use it at work, sometimes I find it hard to use it because I wasn't used to communicating complex ideas. I was more used to like fighting with my sisters about something in French. I think my relationship with Punjabi is more complex. When I was um, at a very early age, I only spoke Punjabi at home. And my mum also felt quite strongly that she wanted us to learn and that we would eventually end up learning English. So we only spoke Punjabi until we went to playgroup. And I think as time has gone on, English took over in our household. So and my relationship to the language is kind of emotional I still have had moments often, especially when um, I've had to express myself in Punjabi for kind of political or literary contexts. Um, and it's in those moments that I realize that um, the way in which I've learned Punjabi is very much in a home setting. complex because because there are two Arabics in my life. The, the Arabic that I work in is standard Arabic. It's quite different from the Arabic that I speak in with my family. The diglossia of Arabic is, is often overlooked when people talk about Arabic as a language. Arabic speakers or like home users are not necessarily comfortable in, in like other forms of Arabic. 
and there's so many different Arabics. It doesn't mean that communication is not possible across the different dialects, but people do that with awareness. They they adjust for each for for each other. So and like try to find commonalities. But speaking in standard Arabic is like learning a foreign language almost. Portuguese is the language that it's very, very dear to me um, because I left Guinea-Bissau when I was six years old and the language that I spoke the most was Portuguese at the time because I was being raised by my grandparents. And it reminds me of that experience of being displaced, of being a refugee, moving to Portugal, having to adapt but always under the protection, the love, the guidance of my grandparents. And then Kriolu is a language that kind of brings sadness to me because when I was much more younger, I was a very, very fluent, confident speaker of Kriolu. That was the language I usually spoke with my nanny and other people in Guinea-Bissau. And as a result of having had to leave at the age of six, it's a language a bit of loss because it represents everything I would have been. Had there not been a civil war, I would have still lived in Guinea-Bissau. I would probably have a very different life than today. So for me, it's it's difficult because I want to speak it. And sometimes it doesn't come out the way it should come out. It can be frustrating and it's easy to want to give up. Um, but I'm, I find a bit of comfort that there's a lot of people like me from Guinea-Bissau that I see now on Twitter and Instagram trying to learn it and master the language and trying to find ourselves a little bit closer to home. It's very hard to articulate any moment, and I've written about this because I think I've always been translating It's been something that's maybe more organically present in my life. I can theorize about it having been present since childhood, but I don't think I would have recognized it or called it translation. The reason why it became an interest was because, I think because it was part of the everyday experience it felt natural. We are always translating. Most of us at least that speak several languages. Sometimes you don't speak necessarily two or three languages, but you are still translating to a certain extent. My grandmother passed away with um, cancer a few years ago. She'd been ill for a while and she kept running away from her appointments and avoiding them because I think she knew that that there was something very wrong with her. But um, I took her to a doctor's appointment and it was the first time that he told me that, and she's sitting next to me, that she has cancer. And it was a very strange moment because I... um, I'm supposed to tell her what he's just said and 
and and I did tell her and she reacted in a, a very kind of strong way and she was angry with me for telling her that and the rest of the family was angry with me that I told her so it was like expected that it's an automatic you know thing that I translate what the doctor has said to her but it was as if actually what my role was supposed to be was to actually not about literal translation but maybe a kind of more cultural translation where I'm supposed to understand that this is not something I tell her or tell her now or tell her in this way which I didn't process. When we left uh, Guinea-Bissau, there was a civil war. We were, at the time, uh, citizens of Guinea-Bissau. So we didn't have any other passport to get us out of there. (laughs) Now, because my father had a good relationship with the French ambassador, he was able to kind of obtain uh, what we call a laissez-passer. It was just really a letter that said, these three individuals, this old lady and her two grandkids, can leave. Because there was a boat that had come to rescue French nationals. And we had to bundle up, take our stuff. I had no idea I was six that we were leaving forever. I was there with my grandma and my sister and an aunt. I forgot to mention. We got to the port. The bombs started falling and there was the boat. Think like a cruise boat, basically. They had to kind of move away so it wouldn't be hit by the bombs. So we had to get inside these dinghy, plasticky boats to then reach the big boat. So my aunt had taken the laissez-passer and in the middle of the confusion, she had kind of been separated from us. Me, my sister and my grandmother, we got into the plastic boat. And once we got into the big boat, we were asked, where's your French passport? This boat is only for French nationals. And we didn't have the paper. We had no idea where our aunt was. And my sister, she was about 12, I think. She was explaining in French because my grandma didn't speak French. She only spoke Portuguese and Creole. So she, my grandmother was relying on my sister to explain to these big army personnel <laughs> in their uh, army suits, boots, explaining that, no, we had a, a document, but we've been separated. And luckily, I suppose they were convinced my sister was born in France, so had a strong French accent. They were kind of convinced, I suppose, that we were supposed to be on this boat, which not only is about translation, the story, but actually is about even the accent, even how we she probably relayed. And it was a tense moment, something that a 12-year-old had to take control in order to ensure we would be finally in safety after we've gone to a really harrowing experience. And I think the way that I experience literary translation as a creative endeavor is more linked to this to this wider um, experience of translation. It's how 
some of us grow up as translated beings, how we exist in, in translation or in between languages already or in between contexts to find ways to move around and, and adopt um, different aspects of themselves for that. But when language is also part of this, then it becomes closer maybe to the experience of, of textual translation. And for me, I think that experience of translation, the personal one, the one that for the first half of my life was not defined as translation at all, is closer to the experience of literary translation um, than any other form of professional translation. I feel very, very comfortable in English and I feel like my comfort with, for example, Punjabi or Hindi is more of a, a, a process where it feels like over the years I've been unlocking um, those languages, especially Punjabi, um, uh, in, a, in a deeper and deeper way. But then it's, there's something really amazing about having these two worlds within you and trying to find a kind of correlation or, or, or passageway through them and, and the process of understanding those words in a deep, emotional, instinctive way and then converting them into to English. It's like a, um, somehow unlocking, unlocking worlds um, and finding passageways between them. Translation for me is quite linked with other forms of adaptation. I see translation as a way of recreating something in one medium that you've absorbed in, in another. And there is no such thing as an original. Every original builds on, on existing expressions by others. I love thinking about the sound of sentences. Sometimes when it works, if I translate some, I'm constantly trying to approximate, to hear a sentence say in, in Arabic and then in English and feel something similar. So for me, I saw translation as a bridge. I saw that, you know, we are so divided in our communities because of the colonial history of Africa that even though we're neighbors, it could be people that speak French, Portuguese, English, Spanish, we don't necessarily interact amongst each other. And we have sometimes even abs absurd ideas of each other. I came to be interested in translation when this Kenyan magazine called Jalada basically initiated this project where they did not want to translate from African languages to English. They wanted to translate between all these different languages spoken in Africa. And in Ngugi Wationgo had a short story, which was written in Kikuyu, and of course in English, <laughs> so that other people can understand it. And from the English version, I was able to translate in Portuguese. The Upright Revolution, or Why Humans Walk Upright, by Ngugi Wationgo. 
a revolução vertical, o porquê que os humanos caminham de pé. Há muito tempo, os seres humanos andavam de gatas, assim como todos os outros animais. Os seres humanos eram os mais rápidos do que a lebre, o leopardo ou o rinoceronte. Pernas e braços estavam mais próximos do que qualquer outros órgãos. Tinham articulações correspondentes semelhantes. Ombros e quadris, cotovelos e joelhos, tornozelos e pulsos, pés e mão. Cada um terminando com cinco dedos dos pés e com cinco dedos da mão. Com unhas em cada dedo do pé e dedo da mão. Mão e pés tinham feições semelhantes com seus cinco dedos de pé, assim que o dedo o dedo grande de pé e polegar na mão, assim com os mais pequenos dedos dos pés e dedos mindinhos da mão. Naqueles dias, o polegar estava mais perto dos outros dedos, o mesmo que o dedão do pé. Pernas e braços chamavam uns aos outros primos do primeiro grau. Eles ajudavam uns aos outros a carregar o corpo onde quer que ele quisesse ir. Ir ao mercado, às lojas, para cima, para baixo das árvores e montanhas, em qualquer lugar que era para se movimentar. That is a first step already because Portuguese is a colonial language, but it is widely spoken in Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, Santo Tomé and Príncipe, Angola, Mozambique, and to a certain extent even in Equatorial Guinea. I'm not able to translate to any of the local languages of such different specific countries that have thousands of languages. But me being able to translate in Portuguese means that if there are translators of those languages, they can use that Portuguese translation. Because most of the time, they don't speak English. So we have to just remember that different contexts require different solutions. next kind of phase that I've been experiencing at the same time is that, for example, the process of reading literature in Punjabi, it, it, it sounds almost colonial because it's like accessing is the word I'm thinking of. And so I know that there is something almost colonial about that approach. And I am thinking of it almost as like another world which I'm accessing, which is probably the colonial part of me. But then on the other hand, the process of translating can also be difficult because I think the more I'm, I'm, I'm reading and there's a part of me that is uncomfortable with what I read, I think some of the things that, that come up often, the, the way that kind of, you know, gender is represented or caste or whiteness, like as in white skin, there's also something very difficult about translating because... I feel as if, do I really want to put this into English? It's something that is problematic in its own context and the problematic should be engaged in that context. But to put it into English, what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? How will it be read? It can't be read to kind of celebrate all oh, this amazing literature in Punjabi that's now been translated, it has to be engaged with critically. But in a white context, that kind of, critical engagement becomes difficult as well. There's something 
in translating creatively, where you're thinking about more than the content, you're thinking about the experience of the sound that you're producing in the sentence on a reader. This is the American Granddaughter, which is a novel by Iraqi writer Monica Jaji. This is a narrator who is herself existing between languages, and she is an interpreter. I mean, I first translated this 10 years ago. There is a paragraph where she talks about her relatives from a particular um, Iraqi city, Mosul, and how they sound when they speak and what that evokes for her. Shall I read it? I liked my Mosul relatives with the shiny back-combed hair and pale rosy faces. They sat as if ever ready to stand up, be it to receive a tea tray, welcome a new arrival, or give up the seat to an elder. They sat supporting small ponches with the right hand and running through the beads of the rosary with the left. When they spoke, it was as if the kitchen cupboards had collapsed and a cacophony of pots and pans were spilling out. Words rolled out of my relatives' mouths in a burst of coughs and rains, with the elongated elf at the end making everything sound like the finale of a musical Noel. Amma, Khala, they sounded like they had just stepped out of a period drama in classical Arabic, extolling the chivalry of Saifu Dawla. So you could hear in a particular Iraqi accent that I wasn't necessarily super familiar with, but I, I probably had come across it at some point and just reading that paragraph in Arabic brought it to life. Something like that is then a real challenge, like how do you transfer that into English and how do you make someone like maybe get a sense, even if they had never heard Arabic before, and also Iraqi Arabic and also Mosul. So like one thing that... I, that's happening here, for instance, in the translation, is kind of like the kitchen cupboards collapse, cacophony, pots, pans spilling out. It's kind of, this, because it's, there's the sound cough in Arabic is, is not going to be reproducible in English, but maybe a barrage of K's and Q's. It makes your mouth work in a similar way. Translation, it started as a tool or a door to open. So, for example, coming from Guinea-Bissau and speaking Portuguese, when I started attending uh, a lot of Africa-centered events, I noticed, uh, obviously in the UK, that most of these events focused on specific African countries. And then the concept and idea of what Africa is was based on English-speaking Africa. Um, and even when I'd speak to fellow Africans, they didn't really understand or even sometimes even knew about Lucifer Africa. For me, really, it's about the access. Um, I, and I think it also comes from the fact that since I've lived outside of Lucifer Africa for so long and interacted more with uh, Ghanaians, Kenyans, Nigerians, all types of other people from the African continent, I have this love, passion, and yearning to reconnect. So it's a bit of a self, to be honest, a selfish desire that from being far away from my own people, I want to translate stories coming from those places.
we often use translation as a metaphor. It can be argued that that takes away from the professional status of what translators do and the, the need for like expertise and the, and also and the same goes for like also recognizing the translation that we do in our everyday lives. I'm starting to see these things as not contradictory. There are, there are different um, manifestations of translation. Taking translation as um, as a prism in, in that way and looking at the world through translated experiences is actually can can be really productive and it doesn't have to take away from the reality that there is such a thing as professional translation. Big thank you to Gitanjali and all those involved in creating We Are Always Translating. And thank you to you for listening. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre. And you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop down box on the homepage. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by hitting the support us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and please review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. And it's very nice to know that you like what we're doing. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.